This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. You know, I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Let's get paid. Welcome to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I'm Jim Pruitt, and this is going to be part of our Fun in the Sun tour of the Farm So Hard Podcast. I'm joined by some of the smartest, most compassionate people that I know. And we're going to talk about something that I enjoy. I think I trained at Grady. That's why I met these wonderful people. And we're going to talk about different aspects of trauma, but not in the way that you think about it. We're going to talk about trauma as far as violence reduction and the different programs that are available for people out there. And I just want to just thank everyone for coming in the audience. And I really want to just welcome our, our guest, Michael Clary, Kenesha Williams. This is going to be a phenomenal episode. And I just want to thank you all for watching at home. And this should get back to you guys pretty soon. All right. So let's go ahead and just jump right into our introduction. So Dr. Kenesha Williams, again, she's an assistant professor of surgery, of trauma and surgical critical care at Great Memorial Hospital, the Department of Surgery and Emory University School of Medicine the Chief Quality Officer at Emory Department of Surgery at Grady Hospital and the Director of Medical Student Education at Emory Department of Surgery at Grady Hospital. Uh, Dr. Williams got her MD at the University of Chicago uh, College of Medicine at Peoria? Uh, University of Illinois. Illinois, Peoria. I'm sorry, Peoria. Uh, and did, did her general surgery residency at the University of Illinois at Mount Sinai Hospital and then did a, a, res, a research resident NIH uh, training program in trauma and burn research and burn and shock trauma research institution in Loyola University and then did a surgical critical care acute care surgery fellowship at Banner University in Arizona. A, a host. So again, just realizing that before she even got going here, she did all the training as possible. <clears throat> Dr. Michael Clary, he's going to place the Department of Emergency Medicine's assistant professor and new First time ever deputy director of violence reduction for the mayor's office. Uh, he received his, his uh, MD at the University of Michigan and then did uh, his EM residency at the University of Michigan as well. He also has a master's of public policy from Harvard Kennedy School and again, and got his BA from Hope College. <laughs> now, a word from our episode sponsor. Hey guys, I know you've been wondering. How did Jimmy get these new sponsorships for the Form So Hard podcast? And I want to go ahead and put you guys in the loop. I've started using a platform called Podcorn. And what Podcorn is, is a platform that connects podcasters to other amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. The cool thing I like about Podcorn is that there's no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform Set your own rates and collaborate with the brands directly without any exclusivities. The other cool part is they're not asking for any rights to the podcast. They really just make it to where you can get compensated for your work. The Marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. So guys, go ahead and check out the link in my show notes. Sign up for Podcorn and see all the different sponsorships opportunities they have for you today. So, again, super excited to have you guys on today to talk to me about violence reduction and all the great work you guys have been doing for a while. And I think many people hear about Chicago, they hear about Atlanta, they hear about 
all the things that's going on, but they don't know the work that's happening behind the scenes after the traumas to make sure people don't have these things reoccur and they and individuals know they have the resources to get prevent violence in the first place. So we're going to jump into a few questions. The first question is easy. Can you discuss, and I've, I've heard this individually from you guys before, but what made you become a trauma surgeon and what made you want to become an EM physician? Well, I, um, I grew up on the south side of Chicago um, in uh, neighborhoods that were the most violent in the city. Um, and when I was 14, uh, my cousin was shot and killed. And the day um, that I went to his visitation, I ended up witnessing uh, the shooting death of another young man, as I said, on the front porch of our family home. Um, and so when I originally went to medical school, I really wanted to do preventative health, you know, primary care. Uh, but as I, I did my trauma rotation, I realized that I could make a difference in something that had plagued me and my community for some time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I went into trauma. Perfect. Is that clear? Um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to like become, going to school, things like that, um, I came from a really small town where my mom was actually a high school teacher, and so like couldn't go to a couldn't really like go to a grocery store without having to stop and talk and like. <laughs> She knew everyone was part of people's lives. Um, and so I think I wanted something similar to that in terms of being connected to folks, but a little bit more hands-on and, like, tangible. Um, so that took me into the medicine. And then during medical school, um, I had worked as an ER tech for a while before um, during undergrad. And then when I got to the fourth year and did an ER rotation and, like, back among a team of providers working on um, a specific like patient and trying to resuscitate that felt like the kind of medicine I wanted to do. Um, and so I kind of felt like I recognized the, the medicine that kind of spoke to me. Um, and then the policy side of it came from wanting to again be further integrated into the surrounding community, um, not just within the hospital walls. Perfect. Again, I think that plays into again, I always tell people I just got lucky to be an ED pharmacist. I had someone let me shadow them for an hour, and I knew immediately that that was for me. And then I had um, uh, my first year rotations in residency, really confirmed that. And then I knew from that point, Grady was going to be the place for me to do my training for BDY2. And I got some people in the audience here that really shaped the way that I enjoy ED and the type of pharmacist that I am. And just being, a, being able to know that I can give back to people who look like me and be that first contact and focus on the things that are outside. Again, the medications sometimes are not the most important thing. Sometimes they can be. And I want to be that person that offload my entire team so we can provide the best care possible. And I just love being in Trauma Bay. Things are happening. I'm like, hey, can I just get some calcium? You know why. <laughs> uh, I get it. You're trying to get us a quarters line right now. You don't care about that. But I can get this in for you. I can get the TXA. And it's pretty cool to be part of a team where everyone's focused on different aspects. But when it works well, it's been the most phenomenal experience. And I, I tell people I can do I can't do anything else other than get ED pharmacist. So that's unique. So we talk about that and what made you want to be the particular specialty you are. But how did the, the violence reduction part come? Again, I think we, we can have a, a clue here, but where did that part come from? Because it's not like, at least to my knowledge, it wasn't something that was like really out there, well known in many programs to go into until I get more recently. Or you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, they, they, we've had some violence reduction programs throughout, even in the 90s when our, you know, violence was at its highest peak. Um, 
But for some reason, they kind of started to go away in some cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have, you know, you've had a lot of universities, a lot of hospitals that have been working on this for some time. I think now um, you have more so a network, okay. um, and people are working together a little bit more to create this network across the country because we realize that this really is a public health crisis. Okay. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really key is that a lot of the infrastructure for this has been undercut by mm-hmm. national legislation that have a gag order. They wouldn't let CDC do any um, research specifically focused on guns. Um, and so there are some like universities have been able to build out violence research, um, but they, everyone has had to be careful in funding that is available for other disease processes that just hasn't been readily available in the same way we talk about, especially like gun violence trauma. Um, from uh, just how did I kind of slide into it is that actually I, I had a part-time job in medical school, like in the second year, and one of the hospitals that University of Michigan staffs is, is Flint uh, Early Hospital. And so on weekends, I would spend nights just interviewing everyone who came in with a violent injury because they were able to build out a violent injury research group. Um, and so it was actually seeing how the ER interacted and being able to see and hear from folks directly involved um, and understanding, frankly, the rationality that's behind a lot of the violence that we see. Um, and what folks are navigating uh, that really interested me and, and compelled me to continue working on Perfect, and I think that's something we, we have to realize that there's programs there, but then funding can be a challenge at time, and I think many of the providers that I've worked with, I've been, when I went to Chicago uh, last month, this is some of the things that came up well when I was at the University of Chicago and at uh, Northwestern. It's like, research is there, programs are there, funding depending on how things go, and then if their funding is not there, do we have a department? Do we have a group? Is the network's not there? How can we really make this something that's powerful? Uh, I remember I was reading an article at Williams, and I'm, someone asked you, um, and it was a really good question. I, I said, I'm going to have to exit my, myself. And it was saying, how is gun violence a public health issue? Uh, I'd love for you, again, I, I heard the answer before, but I would love for everyone else to hear, to hear the same answer. Yeah, I mean, gun violence has been uh, increasing at an alarming rate. Um, it has... Um, you know, we think about gun violence, a lot of people think about uh, mass shootings, a lot of people think about uh, who uh, deaths, mm-hmm. but the people who are injured and the long-term disability from gunshot wounds uh, far outweighs the, the deaths, so, you know, by uh, almost 80%. Okay. So, you know, when we, when we look at this, you know, there is a huge number of people that are injured. Um, also, the the number of mass shooting has increased. If we define mass shootings as four or more people that are injured or killed, uh, last year we had nearly 700 mass shootings in the U.S. And so it really is something to, to think about. Um, and whereas before uh, COVID, uh, there were uh, nearly 400. So to see how it increased over the pandemic even. Yeah, that was a big thing. And I'm clear, I remember, um, we kind of talked back and forth about this. I remember the day that you got the, the call about this before it happened, but can you describe to us the, the role that you have as a deputy director of violence reduction and what that entire department looks like right now? Again, that's not, I believe it's something that's pretty pretty new. Yeah, um, it's, it's exciting. The city of Atlanta last year, um, under Mayor Bishop Bottom, Vice Bottoms uh, convened an anti-violence advisory task force, which gave recommendations. Um, and one of those was to establish this office for violence reduction. There's a few 
Like they, these exist increasingly at cities across the country, and under the Biden administration, there's been increasingly funding available. Okay. Um, like they have a what's called the Civic um, Cohort, and so they're funding cities who are putting their American Rescue Plan money towards violence reduction. Um, and I think a lot of what our our role is, it's actually a little bit twofold. Mm-hmm. Part of it is we want to design a citywide comprehensive strategy that recognizes violence as a public health issue and the many tools that exist to reduce or prevent violence. There's an internal side of it too that is trying to help everyone get on board with that because that's that understanding, that understanding that there is more to respond to violence than just treating it like a um, like a crime mm-hmm. with law enforcement. That's that's real work and it's something that everyone is at a different stage of across the city, across our our. Um, organizations, mm-hmm. frankly, within medicine. Um, but we're making slow inroads. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the statistics that I think help us move it forward is just some of the recognition of how prevalent it is. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the first year that gun violence or violent injury is the number one cause of death for children. Mm-hmm. However, gun violence has for a long time been the number one cause of death for black adolescents. Mm-hmm but not for the general public. So it's been driving disparities within our cities, within our country for a long time. Um, and then the other piece is that it's really widely underreported. So we actually did a study with Grady with what's called the Cardiff Model Screener. And we do that in the trauma center where we ask them, were you injured and was it intentional? And what we found is that 80% of the violent injuries we treat at Grady are not reported to police. And so if we're, if we're formatting public policy or even law enforcement, if that's your only, the only tool they're embracing, it's not getting to the, the true measure of violence. It's only going towards just the crime statistics. And we know folks also report at, at differential rates depending on what their relationship is like with the law enforcement. Um, and so if we really want to change our perspective, which is I think what the director and I want to do within the city to think about, we actually care about the experience of violence, not crime statistics, then that opens up a whole set of new tools and it helps us kind of like um, re-examine where we want to put resources and efforts and who, and how we want to um, em- empower folks outside of just the typical law enforcement response, which is really exciting. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool because I think most of the time when we're in the ED, we're all working together and we realize that these things are occurring. We know that. I think it, 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 that number is shocking, 80% are not reported, but I don't think many people are surprised um, to a degree. When we, we, we see the patients, we see the injuries, and we're there, and we're taking care of them. Once they get better, it's like, okay, well, all right, uh, I have nothing to say. And PD is always on, on the scene for these as well, and I, I feel it's, it's a number that is like, wow, 80%, but at the same time, it's like, I always ask myself, like, would you? Like, would, yeah. Would you? Well, and that's part of the problem, mm-hmm. you know. Historically, you know, tra- uh, trauma patients, violent patients who have been injured uh, by violent um, uh, situations have been treated like criminals, mm-hmm. you know. And they're not criminals. They're patients. They're people who have been injured, people who are experiencing the worst time in their lives. And so we really have to change the narrative in order for it to be reported, in order for uh, patients to feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, a key thing. I think I remember I had a case um, back in MUSC. I think it was when I was in Augusta, we had a patient with a GSW, and they were fine, but again, the, the exam didn't find anything, his, his stomach was fine, and then initially I said, hey, you okay? He's like, hey, um, something don't feel right. And I was like, well, why didn't you tell the team? I'm, I'm the pharmacist, but why didn't you tell the team? He was like, I got, I got weed on me. And I'm like, 
sir, like you're sitting here worried about that. I'm like, where are you hurting that? Let's like get, get this taken care of and move this out the way. Come to find out they missed the spot. They fastened him again. That fast ended up being positive. They took him for X lab. All over him being concerned of being treated like a like a criminal. And something was missed on, on the exam initially. And it's like, wow, this is something that if we can let people know that we're here to help you first, and they actually can feel that, and there's programs and systems in place to help them feel that, then these situations won't happen as often. I'm pretty sure that's, that happens very rarely. But at the same time, it's like, what are you masking? Are you masking pain just so you people can get out your face? Mm. And sometimes that can be something that can clue you in on doing additional exam, additional, additional uh, imaging to find the real injury. I mean, I, you say that you think it happens rarely, but I mean, I, maybe a missed injury mm-hmm. that, of that extent, but I don't think that the experience of feeling unsafe or unable to trust mm-hmm. your, your care team is a rare experience. Correct. Correct. And that's one of the things I think um, yeah. within, is like within our trauma center, we're really trying to work on. And it, it, takes, it takes legitimate effort and taking responsibility for what you are doing as a care provider. We, the things that we are working on, we like term trauma-informed care, which mm-hmm. is kind of recognizing that actually our response and our treatment can act, can further traumatize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one big thing. We, you mentioned earlier about COVID-19 kind of driving some of these numbers up. I want you guys to kind of expound a little bit more on that because this is something that we've all experienced and things we've heard of, but again, you guys have been at the forefront of this in one of the busiest, not only hospitals in the nation, but one of the busiest trauma centers in the nation and probably in the world, if you, if you want to dig down to it. Can you talk to us about the number and how COVID-19 has been uh, impacting domestic violence in, in over, over this last pandemic? Uh, yeah, so when we look at when we look at our numbers, um, if you look at our numbers locally, if you look at numbers nationally, there was an increase in domestic violence. And I don't think anyone was surprised by this, right? People were isolated in their homes. Um, uh, not going to work, uh, not being able to have those outlets, not being able to, to get help as, as quickly as they were before. Um, then you also had children who also uh, were more, um, you know, abuse and injury that was going on as well. Let's not forget that because they weren't going to school um, as well. And there was more stressors in the house. And anytime you have stressors in the house and the environment, that's why we have increased violence in some areas. Um, and so we did see more increase. There was an increase, there's been an increase in uh, adolescent suicides um, uh, in the country as well. Again, that isolation component. Um, and then whenever you have any uh, thing that's like COVID, a pandemic, or any um, uh, tension within it, we had the whole, the police, the tension between the police and the community, things that were going on, we saw increases in violence um, following that as well. And so you've had a lot of, uh, over the past couple of years, you've had a lot of components that have led to increase in violence um, in the U.S. Perfect. Yeah, I, I think that covers it entirely, which is just that, like, again, going back to violence acts in the same way as another disease process and has <laughs> far-reaching uh, effects and is infectious, like person-to-person transmission. And so those things that increase our risk, specifically like more stress, poverty, things like that, uh, and it can create a carrier state that expresses itself in another version, mm-hmm. either violence or... Um, there was actually a really interesting study that was done in New York where they looked at test scores for students. Mm-hmm. So in a week following a, a gunshot in their community, they measured test scores decrease. Mm-hmm. So we know, and I think from a theoretical standpoint, it's really easy to think about how that can we can somatize that, put that, and that becomes part of our 
our experience. But identifying that and treating it, I think, is is the next phase we haven't been able to get to yet. Absolutely, and it's just something that <clears throat> it's nice to just hear, and it's like, hey, well, it's not it's not nice to hear, but it's nice to be able to identify these things are happening. Once we identify these things, now we have a network, we have a system. Maybe we can, from a system standpoint, try to target down on some of these aspects and can go from there. And we've been talking about violent things occurring. And I think we always think about that one event. We don't always think about what happens after that. Can you guys talk a little bit about the statistics of the initial violent injury that occurs and then how often these patients uh, have a, a second, a third, or fourth uh, violent injury that occurs to them? And why is prevention the key? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we looked at it, and it looks, uh, if we look at our uh, patients that come in, about 40% of patients will be re-injured. Um, and it's really important uh, to have uh, facilities in place in order to uh, prevent patients from going back out um, in the communities. Retaliation um, is a thing, and so sometimes they will retaliate, and then they will, then they get re-injured. Sometimes it's more so them just being in the same community, in the same environment, even if there's no retaliation, even if they've never been involved in anything, just being in that same environment um, um, and being uh, injured um, is a real, you know, a real possibility. And so oftentimes we, you know, we've been trying to uh, build a program where patients can have uh, someone who's helping them, you know, on the outside after the trauma. So within the, the hospital, you're connected to a social worker, you're connected to someone, and then outside of the hospital, having someone uh, to help you kind of navigate through the process, find um, educational opportunities, or find jobs, those types of things. Those are the things that we need in the community. Yeah, I think there was one study where, like, uh, they looked at one, I think it was a single trauma center, but uh, about 40-something percent got re-injured in the next five years, and 20% died. And if you think about that as, a, again, a disease process, I don't think that there is um, any other disease process that would rival that mm-hmm. in terms of the five-year mortality rate, yeah. um, which is very sobering, but also I think tells us a little bit about what we have to add to the field. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of the interventions that are, are designed um, tend to focus on the idea that we're going to fix somebody mm-hmm. um, and, like, a version of success is okay. They're like going to college, or you know, some something like that would be made into a Hollywood movie. Yeah. But like, that's not that's actually not what risk reduction is about. Mm-hmm. Like, we give aspirin to people who have like coronary artery disease, even if they're going to go out and they're going to eat a hamburger today, mm-hmm. because we know it reduces risk. And if we can apply that again to the idea that folks are experiencing specific risk factors, and if there are things we can add, access to transportation, jobs things that help them manage their risk, mm-hmm. um, then we should do that, even if it doesn't mean that like we're going to have like a single sort of like storybook ending. It matters if they can enter into a situation and have some different version of response that isn't at, like pulling a gun. Perfect. So I think we've, we've really d- dived deep on just the, the sobering numbers and statistics that we see out there, and we've, we've now spoken on the fact that we now have programs out there now that can help. Uh, we've mentioned now again that time zero or time of the injury, that's one thing that happened. Just if we have patients that are watching or we have people that are, that's had family members been uh, a victim of, of violence, what are the resources once patients are out of that acute phase? What, what are things that we've been working on either the city or, or, or institutions that we can do to help patients once they get out of their acute injury? Um, it really is none of the, it's 
depends on where you are. Um, if we have a program where if a patient has been injured and treated at Grady, um, there's a counseling, there's a service for them. Okay. Um, and so, but again, I don't know if there's any other programs that you know about throughout the city or state. Yeah, I think the number one thing, just in general, as a, like everyone to be aware of, is that if you're injured from a violent injury, you qualify for Victims of Crime Act money, yeah. and that's one thing that our patients don't know about. Yeah. And um, so the idea is that, like, say, if in this works, say you have to relocate or um, those kinds of things, there's federal money that you can apply for through, and it's specific, yeah, each locality to how you can apply to it, but you should qualify for that. Depending on where you are sometimes, that's where policy comes into play because sometimes it makes stupid requirements about like you have to be participating with police or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it does depend on your local politics and, and on who's who's, in, who's advocating for that. Um, but like in Atlanta, what you would do is you would um, go to the Atlanta Victims Assistance Office or call them or um, they have an online presence that you can get in touch with them and you can apply for this money. Um, it also helps with hospital bills, things like that. And so it is simultaneously beneficial for a hospital system to engage and help folks apply for that. Um, and then right now in Atlanta, what we have is a single community-based violence intervention program that's in the NPUV, so like uh, Mechanicsville, Summerhill neighborhoods. And the idea is that like there are ways to help folks re-enter, regain, reclaim some of the space and um, avoid some versions of retaliation if, if we can engage them and, and and help them um, access resources that they find helpful. Yeah. Um, there will be two additional um, sites that are being spun up in the next several months um, near Vine City and out on Cleveland Avenue area. So another like kind of hotspots for where violence occurs. Um, and then we're working really hard to develop this hospital-based violence intervention program that will again go to bedside, identify folks who are at this high risk for re-injury, and engage them, see what they need. Um, again, not trying to fix anybody, but figure out how we can support. Absolutely. And I think the biggest question, I've been fortunate to go to Denver and Chicago and talking to some of their, their team that's interested in this, and everyone always says funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it gets tricky. That's what you usually hear, that the funding gets tricky. As far as like how is how are we doing it from Grady's standpoint, or what advice do we have about how to engage uh, whether it's a state, uh, whether it's something nationally, as far as how to t- obtain funding for violence reduction programs. So funding is, is really, really difficult. Uh, in general, what uh, tends to happen is programs get started as pilots, and then um, either they prove to the hospital that they're cost-effective, which they are, and it's been proven, um, or they um, have like a philanthropic base. Um, there are research grants that some people run off of. We had an initial pilot program that we ran at Grady that was run off of a uh, uh, research grant, but it required like uh, uh, randomizing treatment, which it doesn't often feel very um, realistic or ethical. And so that doesn't tend to be a viable option. Um, we do see an increase in funding availability. So specifically, um, the Biden administration has made funding this approach, like funding community-based violence intervention programs and some hospital-based violence intervention programs up a priority through things like the Bureau of Justice Administration. Um, and so you, you kind of apply for these grants and there's still measurements you need to take to show efficacy. Um, but ultimately, I think the program, like the cities that are doing this well are creating 
like funding lines for it because they understand the ways in which it helps improve the experience of life within the city, reduces the risk of violence, and builds into a, a better economic future. Like they they invest in this long term transformation mm-hmm. idea. So if you guys are looking at a, a model that kind of really buys in and goes all the way, Baltimore is probably the best example right now. Perfect. No, no, I Perfect. So again, one of my last questions is how can people get involved as far as when they're interested in this? Uh, I, I know that uh, most hospitals, again, my hospital currently, again, Grady has it. They have, again, teams. They have everything set up to where if you're interested in this, if there's a, a leader that you can get involved with and, and basically involve yourself in that if you're part of the hospital system. But what are some things that general healthcare professionals can do to get involved in violent production? Yeah, I would say uh, definitely if you're at a hospital, um, try to seek out uh, the department that's going to be working on violence prevention and community outreach. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, I mean, even if you're not working with violence directly or violence reduction directly, going out to schools, going out to the community, uh, speaking with uh, the youth, um, it's very important, um, just being out there and being present. I think that anybody that's listening to this, whether or not you're you know, someone that's young and, and at home and someone who's um, just a neighbor in the community, uh, just being kind to people, just supporting people. Just, you know, when I grew up, I had a neighbor who used to say hi to me all the time. She would cheer me on when I was coming back from school and different things. You know, this, this really, you know, impacted me um, and, and really made a difference. And, and so just being kind and being present for people, for others, I, I think is, is really, it goes a long way. I, I think that, like, um, it, it kind of depends where you're at and where your community's at. Because um, you may, like, if you're in Atlanta, I'm sorry, I'd love to have people be joining in. There's community safety meetings in all these different areas. Um, each of the community-based violence intervention programs, like they need people to support and help with some of their, especially like administrative components. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a city or in a, a system that hasn't embraced this yet, the, like I, I think embracing what you can do to push this as an issue. So again, that internal sort of work of like getting people to recognize violence as something that can be prevented, that can, that you do, we do have tools to treat. Um, can be really, really important, um, whether that's at your health system or in your city council. Um, like, one city council legislated that the mayor's office had to create a comprehensive violence reduction plan. And then that like, pushed the issue, and so they had to create one even when they didn't have it. You know, like, um, there are some ways in which you can advocate, and if you know, you're kind of tapped out, if you don't have the ability to start organizing, um, one of the things you could do that would probably be the most impactful is just to start measuring. So um, thinking of like, when you can like keep track of how many gun injuries we have, can you measure re-injury? Um, and can you start making that case? We've been doing that, with, especially with um, intimate partner violence at Grady, because we know that the unmet need in the city isn't captured, and in order to motivate those funders, in order to motivate external partners, we need to, have, we need to be able to throw numbers to them uh, and challenge them then I think that that can be a very tangible way to start creating space for these types of interventions. Perfect. That's great, guys. Again, is there anything else? Again, I, I don't want to kind of keep you guys too long, but is there anything else you want to either tell the public or, or healthcare professionals out there when it comes to either gun violence reduction or just violence reduction in general? 
No, I think, you know, we really need to uh, start to really hone in on this a little bit more. I mean, we every, people are working on it, but I think there really needs to be some huge steps um, because we're, we're seeing increases. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're seeing increases um, in violence every year. Um, even, you know, uh, at Grady with the gunshot wounds that we're seeing, every year we've seen an increase. I've been at Grady for five years. Every year we've seen an increase in the number of uh, uh, gunshot uh, patients that we've seen. Um, and so, you know, really, um, there really needs to be uh, a focus on this. Um, and it really is a public health uh, crisis. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the most important things is to know that you're not crazy and you're not alone, that this is this is a big issue and there are things we can do. Um, and I, I thought about something else, but then I lost it. The last time again. But again, I just want to thank you guys for coming and, and talking about this because this is something that I was fortunate enough to train with you guys and see at the bedside what's happening. And then to see you guys be pioneers and unleading this, this, this force. And again, there's a lot of things happening. But again, at least I know, at least personally, when I come back to Atlanta, I have people who I know are working very hard to make sure we reduce the amount of gun violence that's out there. And are being leaders to help other people you know, create a model so that they can follow that as well in their own perspective cities. All right. Well, again, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you guys for viewing. This has been another Fun in the Sun episode in Atlanta. Thank you guys. Have a good day. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, perfect, perfect.